Good evening. Thank you very much for coming um, to Poetry and Conversation at the Pratt Library. Uh, tonight we have two wonderful poets, Piotr Guiazda and Joseph Ross. I'll start with the introduction uh, for Joseph Ross. In the Pratt Library um, blog, the interview uh, between Lisa Greenhouse and Joseph Ross, um, Joseph Ross talked about being raised by, quote, two loving and compassionate parents who were both people of high integrity, who instilled in him a vivid sense of justice, a sense that the world is not always fair. They raised him to see the world from the bottom up, unquote. He studied English at Loyola Marymount University and received a Master's of Divinity degree from the University of Notre Dame. He has taught English and writing at various high schools and colleges and currently teaches in the Department of English at Gonzaga College High School. He has a website, josephross.net, and you will want to check out his blog um, to find out um, in his latest post uh, all about Willie Lewis and also to read about the upcoming Split This Rock Festival in March 2014 in D.C. Joseph Ross has published poetry in many anthologies and journals and was nominated for a Pushcart Prize by Tidal Basin Review and Little Patuxent Review. Anthologies in which his work appears include Collective Brightness, LGBTIQ Poets on Faith, Religion, and Spirituality, and Poetic Voices Without Borders. His poem, If Mamie Till Was the Mother of God, won the 2012 Pratt Poetry Contest. Joseph Ross has co-edited with Rosemary Berger, Cut Loose the Body, an anthology of poems on torture, and Fernando Botero's Abu Ghraib. He has published two books, Meeting Bone Man in 2012 and Gospel of Dust in 2013, and both of these books are available for sale at the table. What ex excites me most about Joseph Ross's poetry is his gift and poetic skill for tackling deeply significant and emotionally charged subjects, such as the murder of Emmett Till or children in Darfur. The poet, by choosing and juxtaposing the essential images with the right words in an oral and visual mosaic of truth-seeking, clears the way for the reader or listener to see. Court Bledslow in the New York Quarterly Review spoke of the restraint of Ross's work. In Ross's masterful poem, If Mamie Till Was the Mother of God, each section leads with that phrase, lifting a thundering voice from this restrained musical form. He makes witness poetry, which is a further kind of witness. In his poem, Bone Man at the Beach, Ross continues the theme of death, juxtaposing the vivid scenes of children playing in the water with the invisible but ever-present bone man. The joyous moment at the beach becomes eternity. Not to delay further, please welcome Joseph Ross. Well, thank you, Kim. That was a beautiful introduction. I will do my best to live up to half of it. <laughs> thank you all very much for coming. Um, poetry readings uh, 
you know, sometimes I've, Pietra and I were talking earlier, I've, I've read to just the other poet um, and read to very small groups, but uh, I'm really happy to be here at the Pratt. This is a library, I mean, you folks know, that really advocates poetry and really advocates for literature. It's not just sort of a, a place where books are kept. And I'm just so grateful to be back here. Um, I know people like Lisa and Kim and librarians Judy Cooper and others uh, just do a magnificent job. And it, it is a real gift to your city <clears throat> and to, to those of us writers in the area. So I'm really glad to be back uh, and very glad that you're here tonight. I'm going to read... Um, entirely from Gospel of Dust uh, tonight. Um, this book came out uh, just in middle of June, uh, and so I want to just jump in. The word gospel means good news, and um, so I'm taking a lot, of li- a lot of license with how to sort of understand what good news might be, but the book begins with a, se- a series of poems about people whose lives, I think, have been good news. For her sitting, Rosa Parks, 1913-2005. For her sitting became a sacrament, the act made holy by being itself. The refusal, the straightening of the lips to clarify there is no humor here, no one is playing with anyone. The refolding of her hands, kitchen smooth, battle ready, the deployment of her purse further into her lap, the sedition of settling back into the bus seat a bit deeper because she has arrived at her destination. The looking into the eye of the bus driver, then the police, and the looking away. A magnificent claim to hear, to this patch of seat, to singing a resounding yes that means no. If bending is a sacred act, Cesar Chavez, 1927-1993. If bending is a sacred act, then your back and legs are relics of a holiness known only in fields. If hope is like holy water quenching tongue and fist, then workers can dream of loving the dirt on their fingers. If one can open a globe of lettuce, with hands like maps and share the pieces with those marching in a, gener- in a demonstration the size of a conscience, then your quiet smile, breaking across the brown field of your face, is just the night prayer every farm worker who ever stooped in a field has been waiting for. The cover of Gospel of Dust, I was so happy to, to find this uh, photograph and to find that it was available to be used. It's a, stained, a photograph of the stained glass window of the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama, <clears throat> where I'm sure you know, on September 15, 1963, uh, the church was bombed. Four little girls were killed in the church that day, in the basement of the church. Uh, I had been studying that and sort of throwing myself into the research of, about the girls, about um, the incident, and then saw that the church was bombed on September 15th of 1963. September 15th in the Christian calendar is the Feast of Our Lady of Sorrows, which is this image of Mary at the foot of the cross holding the, the dead body of her son. So then comes Our Lady of Sorrows comes to Birmingham. 
Addie Mae Collins, Cynthia Wesley, Carol Robertson, and Denise McNair. She was used to standing at the foot of the cross, a position from which one sees the world with a volatile mix of sadness and anger. But this is something dangerously different. We know her as the silent mourner draped with the dead body of her son, holding his lifeless skin where she once nursed living lips. But this is something pregnant with anger. A Confederate package left to bring bricks down on the polished little girls whose capital crime is their skin, is bobby socks, is Sunday school in a southern church basement where everyone's faith will break like glass. But Our Lady of Sorrows comes to Birmingham, and she spreads her arms empty enough to hold all four of these girls in a lap that lies open, wide as the wounded moon hanging beneath her feet. And thank you to Kim for mentioning that I want to read this. I feel like this poem sadly gets more and more relevant, though it talks about someone uh, who died in 1955. You, most of you know the details of Emmett Till, a 14-year-old Chicago kid sent to Mississippi for the summer to get to know his relatives there, um, dragged out of bed one night at his uncle's house, uh, beaten and killed, cotton gin fan tied to his neck and thrown in the Tallahatchie River. His mother had to fight with the state of Mississippi to get his body back. And when she finally got it back, she was so stunned at the, the horrible condition that she made this decision that I think is, so, that in, in some ways, there's something really human and rich here. This decision of a mother, right? Not an activist, not a politician, but the decision of a mother to make the coffin lid glass, as she said, I, so the world can see what they did to my boy. So I'm trying to weave that in and out of the sort of a Catholic litany form, uh, and this is dedicated to Sabrina Fulton. If Mamie Till was the mother of God. If Mamie Till was the mother of God, one of the Ten Commandments would forbid whistling. No one would wear cotton clothing. Every cotton field would be burned in praise of 14-year-old boys and their teeth. If Mamie Till was the mother of God, every river would be still, so nothing thrown in could travel downstream. Barbed wire could only be worn as a necklace by senators. If Mamie Till was the mother of God, every coffin lid would be glass, so even God could see how baptisms are done in Mississippi. One of the sections in Gospel of Dust is a sequence of poems uh, that are drawn directly from the, it's called the written gospel, that are drawn directly from some of the four gospels uh, in in the Bible. So I just want to read a couple of these. This is titled Bethlehem, Luke 2. He finds her nothing but a place with animals, built to lean against someone else's house whose doors can be locked. With instinct and prayer, she bites down on pain, chewing this ancient memory for hours until a slippery baby boy, pink with blood streaks, flushes from her, a panting mother, hoping she has done at least this right, that bleeding will not be her last act. 
widow of Nain. A collapsing widow, wrapped in veils, guarded by the crowd, buries her only son. She thinks of leaping into the grave with him. She gazes at the linens wrapping the remains of her boy and whispers, This is my body, loud enough for history to hear. He imagines his own mother in the same collapsing hour. Both mothers are crosses about to bear the dead on their outstretched arms. The last section of Gospel of Dust look, tries to look at ritual um, and in some sort of screwy ways, but there's a, a series in this uh, section called If Tupac Shakur Was a Priest, and uh, so I want to read a couple of these. If Tupac Shakur Was a Priest, Blessing. If Tupac Shakur Was a Priest, he would raise his arms, welcoming us to our own history with a prayer and a slap. He would intone a blessing ancient as quarters, tossed against a curb in a reckless gamble to win hope, to win even another quarter, to stay in the game just a little longer. He would pray that we might be made holy by the knowledge that some prisoners set free at last stay inside on Friday nights for fear of history repeating itself. Finally, he would bless us by tracing in the air, not a cross, but a human shape, like the lines of chalk that once surrounded his own leaking body. And if Tupac Shakur was a priest, bread. His hands hold the bread like a lover's face, palms and fingers cradle breathing cheeks in a Bethlehem grasp. Bread before it is broken is always beautiful, but the breaking requires violence, a tightening of the hands and a tearing with fingers as hungry to share the bread as they are to eat it themselves. Once broken, he holds its halves with the tenderness of skin, anticipating the pieces made holy by mere distribution, the act sanctifies. He offers us a piece the size of the world's mouth, in the pierced palm of his hand. When thinking about ritual, I'm, I was, I'm kind of in, intrigued by the historical um, idea of riots, of rioting as ritual also. And so um, I make it sound like I do all this research. I don't do a lot of research, but it, it sort of caused me to look at some of these sort of the big riots I think of in history uh, and how there are ritual elements that are, that are patterns, um, which is what ritual is anyway. So it's a series in this section called when, when a Riot is a Ritual. I want to read a couple of these, and there's an epigraph here from Dr. King who said, a riot is at bottom the language of the unheard. One, Watts Riots, Los Angeles, August 1965. It did not start with the ringing of the bell on St. Lawrence Church on Compton Avenue. A policeman refused to let an arrested man's brother drive his brother's car home, like the cop thought the car was his, like the cop thought the city was his, like the cop thought the brother was. A brick hit the heart of the arrested man's brother, and when a brick strikes a human heart, it makes a sizzling sound, igniting a flame that will not go out, 
as easily as a man can be folded into the back seat of a police car. For eight days, this flame smoked like incense, carrying prayers into heaven the size of human fists. Two, Stonewall Riots, New York, 1969. The lights rose to police badge brightness, exposing those who only wanted to be seen at their own pace. But this time, breathless and nameless, they fought back, dancing hands balled into fists, feather boas balled into fists. Men and women became men and women, each one carrying a paschal memory of life in a tomb, no longer willing to settle for darkness, their own or anyone else's. have a, um, a fascination with graffiti art um, and living in Washington, D.C. It's a great place for someone who has a fascination with graffiti art. And I've written a lot about uh, a, a kind of an infamous graffiti artist in D.C., Cool Disco Dan. And I'm, there are, are some, a couple poems about him in this book. I'm not going to read those. Um, but I, I love the, one of the functions that graffiti art often, often does is uh, memorializing someone. If somebody in a neighborhood has been killed famous or not famous, um, often graffiti artists will, will, will memorialize that person in a particular way. So this poem comes out of that. Half of this poem is, um, is a found text. You'll probably recognize it. The other half is not, and they're sort of colliding together. We'll see what happens. But this is called The Graffiti Artist's Last Supper. He popped the spray paint can and aimed while they were at supper, shooting a stream straight and clean. He took the bread, blessed it, and broke it, creating an arching tombstone, and gave it to his disciples, saying, For you, little brother, take this, all of you, and eat. Because sometimes only graffiti can say, This is my body, given up for you. Tonight the stealth artist is alone, trying to do this in memory of me. When supper was ended, he tried to remember, to memorize your heartbeat, so he took the cup. Again he gave the wall his best three-dimensional shots of thanks and praise to his young friend killed that day while he gave the cup to his disciples being nothing but a kid. He said, take this, all of you, because living is nothing but yearning for food and drink. This is the cup of my blood that settles into the concrete street, the blood of the new and everlasting lament of a mother whose cries seal a truth covenant. It will be shed for you in paint that tastes like anger and for all so that sins may be forgiven. Now every time he paints a name, he will do this in memory of me. And let me finish uh, with poem called The Upstairs Lounge, New Orleans, June 24th, 1973. Uh, This is the 40th anniversary of this fire. The Upstairs Lounge. One. At the corner of Charters and Iberville streets in a city that burned to the ground twice, the Upstairs Lounge was both gay bar and church, an uneasy mingling for some, a holy blend of desire and hope for others. You had to ring a bell to be admitted, a friendly bartender, a white baby grand piano. After the Sunday afternoon beer special, 
When desire had run its course, the hope came round, and church began once a few chairs were moved, new music found for the piano. They sang like they deserved to. They prayed like they meant it. Two. Someone poured lighter fluid onto the stairs that rose from the sidewalk to the bar, then anointed those slick stairs with a match, creating a Pentecost of fire and wind that ascended the stairs and flattened the door at the top, exploding into the room of worshipers, friends, lovers, two brothers, their mother. The Holy Spirit was silent. No one spoke a new language. Three. Some escaped. Many died with their hands covering their mouths. One man, George, blinded by smoke and sirens, his throat gagged with ash, got out and then went back for Lewis, his partner. They were found, a spiral of bones holding each other under the white baby grand piano that could not save them. Four, then came the jokes. A radio host asked, what will they bury the ashes of the queers in? Fruit jars, of course. One cab driver hoped the fire burned their dresses off. Some thought they heard laughter from a cathedral. Five, 31 men died and one woman, Inez, the mother of Jimmy and Eddie. The three of them sat at a table when this upper room exploded into flame and panic. Four others, though their bodies were identified by police, went unclaimed by their relatives. It is a shame those families didn't know Inez and her sons. Now all their sons are orphans of smoke. Six. After the whipping flames and the choke black smoke, after the screams were singed into silence, after the sirens, the hoses, the arcs of water strung from truck to roof, after the water dripped from charred beams, after one man burned, one man's burned body was pried from a window frame and 31 others were gathered and lifted or swept into identifiable containers, no church would bury them. Every house of God a locked door, curtains drawn tight, save one. A priest from St. George's Episcopal Church who received hate mail for opening his sanctuary to this congregation of ash, now transformed into clouds of incense, rising like praise into the air. Thank you. Now I'm going to introduce um, our second poet of the evening, Piotr Gwiazda. Um, Piotr moved from Poland to the United States at age 17 and has published two books of poetry, Messages, his most current, and Gagarin Street. He is also the author of a critical study, James Merrill and W.H. Auden. His translation of Polish poet, Grzegorz Wroblewski, um, volume of prose poems, Copenhagen, has just been released by Zephyr Press, while his poems, translations, essays, and reviews have appeared in many journals, including Agni, Chicago Review, Denver Quarterly, Jacket, The Nation, 
the Southern Review, the Times Literary Supplement, and XCP, Cross-Cultural Poetics. He teaches modern and contemporary poetry at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, and currently is a visiting scholar at the Humanities Center of the University of Pittsburgh. With startlingly, startlingly diverse images and language simultaneously concrete and mysterious, Piotr's poems capture disorienting and precarious interactions in a somewhat surreal landscape where an aardvark crawls from a dictionary, an elevator jolt brings a perfect scare, and a crowded mall is synonymous with terrorist targets. In this landscape, nothing is simply what it appears to be, as the reader is reminded that at any moment the world can twist from a sunny afternoon to a driving hailstorm, and of the difficulty in making sense of a world where, from the poem Ohio and West, you can teach a person to swim or torture a person in the name of national security. While these, poem, while these poems examine how we know or perceive the world, each other, and especially ourselves, they perhaps more insistently ask or jolt us to enter the unsettled realm of feeling so that we may reimagine our world and say to the poet, as the narrator caught in a desolate parking lot says to the unexpected caller in the poem, Three Pieces for Two Hands, it's good to hear your voice. Thank you, Kathleen. Uh, thank you for these uh, uh, very perceptive observations, uh, very instructive observations to me as well as to the audience. Uh, it's wonderful to be here, thanks also to Kim and to the entire Poetry War Group here at Enoch Pratt. Thank you for inviting me uh, to take part in this uh, series. Uh, so wonderful also to see so many old friends, uh, colleagues, as well as even former students. Um, I'm going to read um, a couple of poems from Gagarin Street, um, followed by a couple of po poems from Messages, and then I'm going to concentrate on new work. Um, I thought it, it would be fitting uh, if I begin with uh, a poem, an autobiographical poem, although as many of you know, even lyric poems are 50% truth and 50% things that we make up, but let's call it an autobiographical poem, one of the first poems uh, that I actually wrote in Baltimore when I moved to Baltimore in 2002, uh, 2002. and this poem describes that period, looks back at that period of my first year, my first actually several weeks and months in Baltimore, uh, a city I had not known or seen before. Um, it describes the process of uh, learning a new city, discovering a new city. Uh, it's called July. Days were predictable, 
times uncertain. A heat wave paralyzed the eastern seaboard. The war inched on. Dow Jones kept sliding. I had just moved to a new city. Every afternoon I would take walks by myself, learning street names, marking buildings. I read signboards, posters, inscriptions under statues, people's faces. Some would even ask me for directions. Strolled through the cool halls of churches, museums, libraries, with the guilty curiosity of a student skipping school. So much time, so little money. I survived on bread and Tolstoy. In the newspapers, another suicide bombing, another corporate scandal. Meanwhile, the sun would rise above the painted harbor. Tuesday imperceptibly slip into Thursday. Such bliss, such misery. I savored my solitude. I craved company. My pocket notebook was filled with apocalyptic images. In the West, half of America was on fire. And then another poem, uh, an even older poem, uh, also semi-autobiographical. The backdrop here, it's also a city poem, but the backdrop is New York City. Um, this poem appeared originally appeared in uh, an anthology called Tokens, Contemporary Poetry of the Subway, um, which only shows you how old this poem really is. It dates back to the time when people still used tokens as opposed to metro cards um, in New York. Um, here it is. It's called The Subway. One day... I will return to the place where all trains stand still. But now I live in this city. Does it always rain here on weekends? Whose streets lead to the underworld, full of ghosts reading magazines. I am its single resident. There are no other cities. Okay, and now some newer work um, from Messages. It's a uh, book that collects some of uh, my poems as well as, as well as includes an interview conducted by Patrick Pepper, who is a publisher and a poet who lives in Washington, D.C. Um, and the first poem I'm going to read is called Ether. Um, while writing this book, I was all, uh, I while writing this poem, I was also reading a book by uh, Joel Milutis, who actually happens to be in the audience today, 
uh, a very good book called Ether. The nothing that connects everything. Uh, it is about the cultural and historical meanings of the term ether, uh, as well as uh, what Joe calls our inalienable right to illusion. So in some ways, this poem is a response to that wonderful book uh, and to the idea of ether, what it has meant culturally and historically. Um, but I was also thinking about the use of the word ether in... Um, Antonio Negri and Michael Hart's by now classic work of political theory called Empire, the book that came out in 2000. Some people call it the Bible of the anti-globalization movement. And in that book, Hart and Negri all use ether as an operative term to describe what they call the third uh, mode of imperial control, the other two being money, and military power. Uh, and simply by ether, they, they mean culture, communications, the education system, which can be very liberating on the one hand, um, but on the other hand, it's also regulating. It's, there's also something hegemonic about it and very democratic at the same time. So that's what, what ether means to them. Uh, what I was trying to consider in this poem is the role of the poet in the current global configuration or the global system in which we live. So, here it is, ether. The world is everything that is not the case. A system of remote processors and massive databases, networks of communication, cloud computing, etc. Does anything Anything can be put into a poem. The morning star, the morning news, the lost dog, the lost cause, your feelings, your bank account, Paris, hope, especially hope. And it is up to the poet to translate, i.e. to say, you think this is a movie, but it isn't a movie. You think this is freedom, but it's a Chinese toy. The poet is a hacker. Is art information? A spoiler of the tyrant's feast. A disturber of the public peace. A traveler on the red eye. An assassin in the boardroom. Poetry is a matter of perspective. Perception, rather. All you need to do is pay attention to what you are looking for or looking at, as with the dark rabbit. And voila, out in the ether, some gnostic chant, some joyous cantata begins. Nothing happens, something does. First nature, then culture. First thanks, then thanks. First handshake, then bullet. First eyesore, then gentrification. First speeches, then more speeches, followed by the big lie, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, never repeat yourself. And the plain truth and le mot juste, 
and bird song and mother tongue, the reconstruction of dreams. And a brief companion to that poem, uh, also a meditation on the role of the poet or the, the role of poetry in the age of empire. This one is called Purgatory. Topic du jour, torture. Is it good or bad for America? It certainly makes it tougher, more competitive. Poetry, on the other hand, makes it softer and more humane. The rage of the talk show host, the tyranny of the minority, the pleasure police, the impossibility of being apolitical, the impossibility of taking a perfect picture of yourself. What's your name, honey? America. The banality of morning clouds. Vivaldi in the shopping mall. Jury duty. Okay, and now on to some newer work. For the past year or so, or a couple of years almost, uh, I have been working on a sequence of poems uh, Hopefully, eventually, eventually, it will amount to, to a volume, a book, um, which I call, in a rather clinical and dry way, Aspects of Strangers. Aspects of Strangers. Um, originally, when I conceived this project, when I started writing poems about strangers, I, I, I was reading, I must have read, or had in the back of my mind, the essay, that famous essay called The Stranger by Georg Simmel written over a hundred years ago about the figure of the stranger in society, what the stranger signifies. The stranger is not an outsider, uh, not, not a wanderer, but a person who, as Georg Simmel says, comes, to, comes today and stays tomorrow. Uh, the person who is both near and far, the person who may appear dangerous, threatening, uh, but who can also teach a community or a group, something different, something that the community do doesn't know. The person who is here to stay, and of course we can think about so many applications of this idea, of the term of the stranger, to today's world. Migrations, transnational identities, and all that. Um, but what I was especially interested was not so much as what, what the stranger appears as to the group or a community, what the stranger signifies, but what the group or community signifies to the stranger. Uh, so the emphasis is on they, on them, not on, on, on him or her. All right? So it's a series of meditation on the idea of the stranger. Uh, I'm going to read two, two sections from this sequence. The first, for lack of a better term, I would describe the first approach I would simply describe as ethnographic. They are uncomfortable with the idea of revolution because of their inherent faith in progress. They willingly submit to hypnosis and propaganda. They don't begin to form their own opinions until well into their 30s, even 40s. They set their clocks back and forward, goal-oriented. They hold a rational worldview 
but accept the fundamental uncontrollability of nature. They fear accidents in bad weather, phone calls in the middle of the night, anthrax spores in a potato. They pledge, they pledge not to live according to a previously written script. Yet even their wisest philosophers can't distinguish between a bank account and a giraffe. They draw knowledge from symbols, the serpent, the mandala. Yet their eyes glide over even the most unusual objects, a deer among the ruins, a corpse holding a baby, shoes hanging from a wire. They have no word for light sadness. Their language, in any case, is a kind of camouflage. They believe in the transmigration of souls, especially animal souls. They protect their eyes from the sun. They are afraid of the sun. You can easily mistake them for robots. Don't tamper with their systems. Beware of their hands and of their little sharp fingernails. Some imagine mysterious landscapes. Sam some tap into hidden resources, some have weak nerves, some embrace stasis, some practice indifference, some preach the message of love, some are betrayed, the haves and the have-nots. They are prone to envy and indignation, but their most genuine emotions are fear and shame. They refuse to accept responsibility to their, for their actions. They breathe the polluted air. Their statues stare blankly into the future, the living, the unborn, or the sad masquerade. Experience comes to them, a hand holding a dove. They visit cities like Paris and El Paso to collect souvenirs. They have no knowledge of geography. They dream in a foreign language. As they emerge from the subway, they look baffled, peering in all directions to ground their location. They devote themselves to the pursuit of pleasure, yet forget to live in the moment. They sleep with their eyes open, wash their faces and hands neurotically. They wear sunglasses all day long, even in rainy weather. In heavy snowstorms, they abandon their vehicles by the side of the road. They reluctantly accept the possibility of existence of other planets. When requested, they use emergency exits, follow escape routes. They live in the clouds, a multitude, a rabble. They pick up their luggage, at Carousel Tree, and you never see them again. And now a different, slightly different treatment of the same theme of aspects of strangers. Uh, this one less empirical or faux empirical, uh, less scientific or faux scientific. Uh, this one is steeped in dream, in maybe in the subconscious, in symbol. Aspects of strangers. Were you afraid? 
afraid of flies and mummy masks. What do you remember? The smile of a child, a shepherd. Where do they live? In basements, clouds, forgotten things. What is the moon? The moon gives back a woeful look. What did they say? Say no, say yes to fortune tellers. What did they look like? Like the mannequins of the Kiriko. Well, thank you again all for coming and uh, for being one more of the publics for poetry. And thanks to Pieter. I'm grateful to finally meet you. Uh, I had read his book and written about his book. And I'm, it was very. it's always special, I think, to me to hear a poet read in his or her own words. So it's been great to read with you, and I'm, I'm grateful. Um, I want to finish. Uh, let me... I want to finish with two poems about Dr. King. Dr. King's Funeral Procession, Auburn Avenue, Atlanta, Georgia, April 9, 1968. <clears throat> the wagon wheels carrying him were older than his father. They're rutted, wood, rolling, uneven, rough, even now. The work mules pulling him looked only at the street beneath them. This April day, there was no sky. Some of the men walking beside him wore overalls, the mark of men who knew the songs of garbage and wood. The crowd's silence came not from shock, but from understanding. Sometimes we are both the victim and the gun at the same time. And let me finish with uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial, Washington, D.C. If you haven't had an opportunity to see the memorial in Washington, D.C., I urge you to go see it. You might wait a month or so, because I think uh, just before the 50th anniversary of the March on Washington, they're correcting or they're re-engraving something, so there's some scaffolding around. It's not quite as stark as it usually is. But it's a beautiful beautiful memorial, and the statue of Dr. King, uh, I heard a grandmother telling, at least a, a little kid, I sort of assume grandmother telling her grandson, he looks like he means it. I thought that was a perfect description. And you might know that it was, it was sculpted by a Chinese sculptor who was told he had to make the face less severe. So the, the sculptor had to go back. In other words, this, this face that looks like he means it um, had already been softened once. <laughs> I would sort of like to have seen the original, but it, it still looks like he means it, which of course he does. Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial, Washington, D.C. If blood could course through stone, his mouth is about to break into words reading in America's language of bullets. If stones could turn to bread, he would bend down to feed us, offering us wheat and wine enough to survive the vocabulary of homelessness, the diction of choosing between the heater and a dinner of toast. If bread could become the body of God, then he would whisper to us a new pledge of allegiance. And if the body of God could live in stone, 
it would look like this preacher whose gaze dares us to stand upright and breathe in this bleeding land. Thank you. Okay, and I will finish with uh, a poem, uh, another section from Aspects of Strangers. And uh, this one uh, has recently been published in the Seattle Review. Um, the Seattle Review now publishes long poems only. So if any of you who are poets here who have long poems would like to, you would like to send to the Seattle Review, they will be willing to look at your long poems. Not many journals uh, do read long, uh, consider long poems. Um, so again, Aspects of Strangers. These are their core values. Aesthetics, aesthetics, aesthetics. They fetishize technology and the idea of good and evil. They have a penchant for mimicry. They understand nothing. They have kind faces and a genetic predisposition for war. They are not unlike hermits on the islands of sociability. They speak about the ineffable in highly self-conscious tones. Sometimes they break into song or an orgy of flower arranging. They believe in reincarnation being vertically connected. They can never see themselves. Their mirrors are ambiguous. They believe in art for art's sake. They inhabit the human form. They study weather reports. They follow safety precautions. They disappear in one decade and reappear in another. They live in affluent suburbs stretching from sea to sea. They collect archetypes. They study their palms for clues. They rake leaves in November. They prefer roots to trees. They watch movies at sundown. They read flash fiction. Sometimes they refuse to enter the realm of the symbolic. They pose for photographs, rehearsing non-existence. They ride on the escalator. They are internal emigrants. They talk on portable devices, each in a different language. Their cities attract the lonely. Their temples shelter the doubting. Their buildings sway in the wind. Their statues look upward. Their hospitals teem with magicians, long intimate with death. Their supermarkets sell produce, household objects, guns.
Their history lacks accidents. Their religion lacks bloodshed. Their science lacks certainty. Their philosophy lacks gossip. Their literature lacks altitude. Their rooftops are white. Their enemies lack ammunition. Their joy is incomplete. Their flags are patriotic. Their fences are cosmopolitan. Their nightmares are scripted. Their needs are mass-produced. Their missiles are unstoppable. Their cars are unbreakable. Their art represents nothing. Their dogs are psychic. Proportion is anathema to them. Perfection is catastrophe to them. The absolute is relative to them. They maintain equilibrium. Their future is unknown to them. Their destiny is unfair to them. Their solitude is poetic to them. They embrace contradiction. How crowded their airports, how separate their dreams, how frightening their angels, how delicate their eyes, how musical their planets, how dangerous their sun. The silence of their beaches, the darkness of their cinemas, the mystery of their radios, the romance of their TV sets, the beauty of their systems. Thank you again. Thank you very much, um, Joseph Ross and Piotr Gwiazda, for sharing your wonderful poetry. Uh, please join me in thanking our poets again.